0: A lot of times it starts with customer objectives. So we see a lot of the folks we talk to across the spectrum of clients we deal with, they have similar objectives, right? They just call them something different. And I think once we identify that and we're able to, if we've successfully addressed one, it's then mapping it back, stripping out the vernacular, replacing it and just kind of taking the process down to its studs and then sort of rebuilding it specific to that particular customer or industry or segment.
1: Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest-growing companies. Together we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, my guest is the Vice President of Global Sales, Kevin O'Connell. He's led sales teams at Salesforce, EMC, and as of early this year, now is leading the global sales function at one of the world's leading enablement platforms. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing some of your time with me today. Appreciate it, Lee. Happy to be here. Well, first things first, we were actually touching on this kind of in the pre-show, your background, but for anyone listening that hasn't come across you before, what is your story?
0: Sure. So I have been in tech sales my entire career. I woke up recently and realized it's about 25 years, which is a little scary. <laughs> Doesn't feel like that. So maybe that's a good thing. But the reason I bring up the duration is I've, sort of, I've migrated from hardware, through sort of the year of hardware into SaaS, where I spent the last decade plus. And it's been interesting that I've had had five different, I've been at five different companies, each in a different subsector of tech, which has been really enjoyable for me because every time I move, I'm learning a new industry and kind of building from the ground up and just kind of learning tech in general, but to trying to apply lessons learned from one job, one role to the next as I kind of migrate through my career. So in that respect, like there's been a lot of variety in terms of the different types of tech, we'll say, that I had the fortune of being able to sell. So that for me has been especially gratifying. I'm super curious then. I'll just
1: start with a really big question. What have been maybe some of the best lessons that you've learned that are applicable across the different subsectors that you've worked in?
0: Lessons. Yeah. I mean, it, the one that sort of has been a guiding principle for me has always been, there's no substitute for preparation. Mm-hmm. And I I say that from a macro level in the sense that like that can be applied throughout as a salesperson, whether you're actually a individual contributor, if you're a frontline sales manager, even if you're a sales engineer, right? I mean, anywhere in the sales process, I feel like the emphasis and time put in the preparation is Such a benchmark and bellwether of success that I can't stress and emphasize that that particular point enough. It's something I could talk all day long about in terms of my perspective. I mean, it really. My background, sort of prior to entering the professional world, as an undergraduate, I was a collegiate horseman. I wrote in high school. I wrote in college, and if you don't know anything about the sport, it's the competition itself is a handful of minutes long. It's anywhere from five to six and a half minutes long, and Reality is you put in hundreds and thousands of hours to prepare for a few opportunities in your season that define your season that are five to six minutes long. So I think I was just hardwired in that respect. Like in other words, performance is a function of preparation. And that sort of inverse proportion that I had always sort of been accustomed to growing up was really what drew me to sales in the sense that it's like, okay, it's a very similar paradigm in my mind, right? It's like, Sales process is very, very long, but at the end, when you're closing a deal, it's very short. And now I guess, so I think of that as the race, right? That's the competition or the competitive piece of selling. So for me, there was just something clicked in terms of the same sort of mantra or approach or thought process as it relates to determining your success.
1: So I don't want to spend the whole conversation talking about preparation because I know that we probably could, but I am keen to ask then and just dig into it a little bit. How do you approach it? And perhaps uh, the best way to maybe think about this question is certain scenario that you're preparing for, because I imagine this is something that, I mean, you can prepare for anything, right? You can prepare for a meeting, you can prepare for a discovery, you can prepare for any one of a number of different things. What I'm interested to know is, do you have like principles uh, that go into how you prepare for something? Is there an approach that you take when you're preparing that you apply to different scenarios?
0: Yeah, almost every single one, actually. And I think about it, it's almost like a reverse engineering of the process. Right. In other words, we talk about this a lot at Seismic. We have, we emphasize this a lot as what's the outcome we're trying to achieve. Okay. So we start at that, which is really the end state, right? And then it's mapping back from there. What do we need to do to get to that outcome? Whether it's within the context of one meeting, one demo, one negotiation, whatever, right in the process, but it's that same approach. Like, okay, this is what we want to achieve. What's our best outcome and how do we get there?
1: I got you. And uh, how do you reiterate and reinforce that with your team? Is it literally just a case of ensuring that they are well-prepared going into meetings or are you able to standardize making sure that they're prepared going into their meetings?
0: I think it's an element of standardization because it's, as I said, I always start with that first question. It's like, what are we trying to do here? And where are the gaps? Like in other words, If somebody is preparing for, let's just say, a meeting, right, where we're going to go and present to a client for the first time or a prospective client for the first time, our goal there is to get another meeting. Like, and I say that a lot. I was like, hey, our goal here is to get another meeting, to oversimplify it, but to get specific, it's saying maybe we want to get, we're going to go present and we want to get a demo on this, or we want to get a trial or a POC or something like that, right? A very, we try to get granular with the objective. And then I ask the team to to kind of present back, like, okay, what's the storyboard here? How do we, from the start of the meeting to the end, we did this yesterday, I have a meeting later today with a client and we did a entire dry run of the meeting yesterday, preparing for everything and really asking questions. I was asking the questions and challenging everybody else to challenge each other with questions to say, why wouldn't this work, right? Like where are our holes, where are our gaps? What are we thinking about, right? What could the client potentially say that could derail us at any point in the meeting or in the process that's going to prevent us from achieving our desired outcome. So that's really the methodology.
1: It reminds me a lot of pre-mortems, if you're familiar with the term, i.e. where you're going into it, going, what could potentially, as you say, what could potentially derail this going into it? And do you have perhaps an example of when you've, you know, an objection that you've been able to pull out in one of those sessions where you're preparing for a deal that actually going into it, it then came up and almost by the end of it, you're walking away feeling that's justification for the preparation that we've put in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, there's real specific granular ones I can talk to, like where a customer may come back and say, hey, I can't spend money this year. Right. Like, And we knew that because they disclosed that earlier in the process or something along those lines where we've known like, hey, we're going to put, let's just say a quote or a proposal or a contract in front of a customer. And they're going to come back and say we can't spend money this year, and say, "Oh, well, we thought about that, and here's how we structured your terms." Right, so we're getting creative in the way that we structure deals. We run into that fairly frequently. Oftentimes, it's questions. We'll get questions, and this is where I tend to punt because I need smarter people in the room to answer it. But it's maybe about an integration or something like that with our pro- our platform and a third party, like be it Microsoft or something like that. Right, where on the back end there needs to be some integrations where. We've done our homework and we've prepped and we understand the tech stack and we understand sort of the customer's preferred path and their view of technology and how they like to manage it and the way they like to manage integrations, as I'm sure you've seen and heard. I mean, some customers do it very elegantly, others kind of do it and it looks like a big plate of spaghetti, right? So those are some examples, I think, where we've had some answers or we knew we're able to anticipate some answers going in and had a response that, kept the conversation focused and moving forward and didn't warrant a tangent or worse yet, a delay or another meeting or something like that.
1: Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't wanna miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. Got you. It's a really nice way to approach it as well, I think. And just to pivot us and away slightly from preparation. I know you've been at Seismic for, is it around about seven months now? So when you first came in, what was the challenge ahead of you? What was your objective? And really, other than I'm here to hit my targets, what was your remit when you first joined?
0: It really was learning the enablement space. And I say enablement, I mean, it's Seismic's flagship product is the enablement cloud. And that was kind of touched on this at the top, right? It was a new subsection, subsector of SaaS. For me, where I didn't have, I was not a subject matter expert. I didn't have a firm handle on the technology, the players in the space, how we fit into it, what our strategic partners or who our strategic partners are and why they were important. So it was really, it was arming myself and sort of learning those sorts of things and becoming an expert on that was really my initial focus and remains. I mean, six, seven months in, I mean, like anybody else will tell you, right? And things are always changing, but. That's been my focus for the last two quarters, in addition to your point managing the business. And even though
1: it, in the grand scheme of things, is probably quite a short period of time, is there perhaps one maybe initiative or thing that you've done in the time that you have been there that
0: you're most proud of? Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of opportunities where we were working with the existing customers last, last quarter, where I feel like just through, through getting to know the customers, because I put a big premium on that. It's like, We need to get to know people on a personal level, not just a professional level, where investing that time helped us and helped us see benefits. I think just being honest and candid with customers is huge because it lets them know like, you know, it just makes things personal on a level and it makes it helps them understand like you're not just there to sell them. Like if you spend some time and I've done this with a couple of customers already, I was on the phone with one yesterday. I've only known for a short period of time, but in my first conversation said, hey, this is the way I like to operate. No cat and mouse. Like, let's be honest with one another. We're both trying to get to the same outcome. And, like, let's get there together, but let's help each other do that. And it's, I sort of, I try and inject that candor into all these sort of relationships very early on because I want people to know, like, I'm not here to create a win for me and a loss for you. Like, it's going to be a mutually agreed victory here, right? Or a mutually beneficial is the better way to put it, right? Victory. We're both going to get what we want. And I think establishing that up front goes a long way towards making for a a less acrimonious sales process, right? Because negotiations don't have to go that way and they shouldn't in my mind. I think there's a way to make them very sort of simple or simpler, maybe not simple, but certainly simpler in my experience. So, I mean, I've been able to do that in a few instances with some customers just in my short time here, which it's something I hope that I'll certainly continue to do that because I've done that, but it's something I'm trying to part of my team as well to say, Hey, you know, this is the way I'd love to see you guys do this and give this a shot because it's not something earlier in my career I was comfortable doing, right? It's like it does, you have to do it a few times and see it be successful. It's risky, right? And you don't want to roll the dice and lose on something like that. So it's not a science, it's more of an art, the relationship side of it. But it's something like the sooner in your career you're able to do that, I think the more successful you're going to be that much quicker.
1: Yeah, it's certainly something that I've spoken to a few different guests of and and I guess personally have seen the benefits and also the pitfalls of it right in terms of being candid and I love it using it in the context of with customers as well where I think I was talking to Jeremy Bono from Venom the other the other week on the podcast and it was very much the same point of being very open and really it's about having a partnership with the customer right and so it's a case of we both want to win from this and by I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase it by not getting to the point and by skirting around the issue it inevitably just leaves both parties a couple of degrees off from where they need to be and that's then when issues don't get brought to the surface and they're the ones that can really fester over time that when it's coming up to renewal time that really starts to come to the surface it's like how did we not know about this right and so i'm interested and appreciate your It's still very much in the early days of the new role at Seismic, but how do you envision starting to roll that out to the rest of your team? Because it's certainly not the easiest thing to get people to start being more candid and to be more honest, even internally, let alone externally.
0: So, and it's a great question. And as we're talking, I think about this, like the fundamental reality here is like, we're trying to establish trust. So the context that I was talking about it was externally with clients, right? But To answer your question, in other words, to get folks on the team to embrace that and try and operate like that with their clients. I try to do that with the folks on my team. Like six months in, I inherited a team. I had to bring on some new folks into the business as well. And the most important thing for me in a working relationship with these folks is we, one, like, I don't, I hate the notion of like, oh, you won't hear me say so-and-so works for me. We work together. Right. And there's no as much as there's there could be a hierarchy on a north chart somewhere. We're all in this together. We're all chasing a common goal. So I like to kind of level set the playing field there. But at the same time, establish a level of trust. In other words, the folks that are working with me on my team, they can trust that I'm going to be their biggest advocate internally and externally. Right. And I think if you can establish that trust, it creates a personal relationship within your team and relationships across your team. And then it makes it that much easier, I think, to do that, but with a client, right? And what you're really trying to do is get the client to trust you and vice versa. And to your point earlier, you made the comment, like within the context of a renewal, how do we not think of that? If you've got a client to trust you and, you know, vice versa, those kinds of things don't happen, right? And that was something, Salesforce, they do a lot of things really well, but they promote the idea of trust better than any organization I had seen up to that point in my career. And that was something that I I took away from there is sort of the value of that. And how do you weave that into your day to day? Because without it, it creates some pretty dysfunctional realities that aren't always that don't prevent you from generating the outcomes that you want to generate as frequently as you'd like to.
1: Now, something that you mentioned before that I'm quite interested to dig into, you mentioned it's more building those relationships is more art than science. And a lot of what we talked about really has been the art and sales, but I'm quite curious to get your perspective on the science of sales as well. And we're starting to talk about data and insights and all this type of thing. So how do you integrate, should we say, the science of selling into your approach to sales and sales strategy?
0: Yeah, so it's I think it's the lens through which you look at deals. And there was uh, an individual I worked with at Salesforce, a guy by the name of Jim Rich, and he would always look at deals and say, You know, I would go to him as part of his team and say, hey, this is why this deal is going to close this quarter. And Jim would look back and he would say, here's why it's not going to close. Right. And in doing that would surface the science behind why it's not going to close. You haven't done this or we don't know that or we haven't gotten this done or this. We're not where we need to be with the data security, whatever it may be. Right. And I think if you look at things through that lens, the earlier in your career, I feel like you do that, the more successful you're going to be because that really, as a salesperson, you're chasing a goal, you're chasing a quota, you're a competitive individual, like all salespeople are, right? But, and you want to focus on the positive, right? How am I going to get to the finish line quickest and with the biggest number to make my quota that much smaller, right? But you can't ignore the, the I'll call them the warts, right? like the things that are still out there that you haven't done or need to do a better job of. So it really, I think the science of it is looking at it through that lens and saying, yeah, yeah, I know why it's going to close, but here's why it's not going to close and what are we doing about that?
1: And how do you, or probably a better question is, are you able to give a bit of context on how you guys are doing that within seismic at, at the minute, you know, perhaps some examples of how you, you surface some of that perspective, perhaps on why it's not going to close to your reps?
0: So we have, we use, you know, something we call it a mutual action plan. Mm-hmm that we work on with the customer that maps out the remaining steps. And I mean, it's very comprehensive. And I worked with mutual plans before in my career, where it's IT's on board, marketing's on board, it's very high level, it's generic, right? The plans that we use are very granular and they're granular, like the template's granular, but then you make it further or specific to your particular opportunity or client. So that something that may start off with 10 boxes to check is actually 30, right? And We look at that from our CRO down, everybody looks at that as, hey, this is our path to success, right? And if we're doing our jobs right, the customer is engaged as well. And more often than not, the customer is engaged in this and we're aligned with them. We present that, you know, once we know we're working on a real deal, we present that and talk to that at the conclusion of every meeting just to say, we're agreed this is done, we're agreed this has to be done, we're agreed this is getting it right. So it just, it creates that alignment. And to me, that goes back. It's another, at least the way I think of it, like another example of the science we were talking about earlier and how we do that.
1: And more from a curiosity perspective, does that mutual action, do you use any kind of like deal qualification criteria that feeds into that mutual action plan or does your discovery process work in a different way?
0: It, would, it, it works, it doesn't directly feed into the mutual action plan. Which isn't to say that it won't. I and mean, then I can't I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we ultimately link that together. I think fundamentally they're linked, but the mutual action plan really starts when we know we are building a proposal and trying to gain consensus to get the customer to spend money.
1: What I really like about the the, the concept of the mutual action plan is it really starts to add structure to I suppose the part of the deal that realistically starts to become the most unstructured part of it, right? As soon as you start getting past discovery and demo, and it's very easy really to, I say very easy, but relatively easy to standardize that. Once we start getting into the realms of negotiations, putting together proposals, making sure that we're engaging the right stakeholders, it opens up a lot of diversity when it comes to the different deals. And so how do you, you mentioned that you keep it very granular, but is that based on a singular template, or is that mutual action plan uh, developed with each deal in mind?
0: There's a base template that everybody uses. But from there, like, for example, we have, let's say six deals in our pipeline this quarter that we're working on. We have six distinctly different mutual action plans, like you can boil them down to the event, they all started from the same place. But I have one customer that we're working on an expansion with another we're working on an e- any e- putting an ELA together for a customer that has a handful of operating companies that we're trying to bring under the seismic umbrella, right? So you can imagine, you know, because it's two different objectives and the nature of the sales are different. One is, they're definitely nuanced, like one to the next, I guess.
1: And now, going to ask a bit of a different question now. Now that you've kind of uh, certainly warmed yourself up a little bit in the first kind of seven months, what is perhaps the biggest challenge that you've got in front of you that you're trying to solve right now?
0: It's Specific to the role that I'm in right now, it's getting businesses or companies that historically have not considered enablement as a path to revenue growth that we've learned that it's become. And that we've seen other customers implement and prove to be true, getting getting, creating that awareness, right? Getting them to see that there is a enablement truly leads to revenue growth. And especially in an economy that we're in now, and the reality of the Distributed workforce as a function of the pandemic that we're still living through now, I mean, I feel like enablement has never been more important than it is and that it has been in the last several years. And that's what's got me really excited about it. But the biggest challenge is looking at businesses that historically ignore it because they don't think it's for them and really what they need to realize it's for everybody. And the beauty of it is, is it can be curated for everybody, right? Just because a healthcare company does it one way doesn't mean a Logistics company has to do it the same way, right? It, it, there's different flavors for everybody, but there's a role for it for everybody, and that's it's getting these sort of historical holdouts to help get the light bulb to go off, so to speak. That's been our biggest challenge, at least within the world that I'm working in right now. So I would say that's been it.
1: Does that become a collaborative exercise with marketing and operations to do that, or are you looking at it from a very much a sales perspective?
0: No, so what's great about the way we operate is on the front end and then throughout any kind of sales initiative or sales-led effort, we bring everybody in and we bring them in early. We have a business value consulting team who really, and that's where, I mean, they're key to my business, right? Because when I talk about the pharmaceutical company versus logistics company, right, there's understanding sort of how the, the ABCs of how their businesses operate and their path to revenue and their path to growth and their goals, and how they're going about that, they, obviously they're radically different, but that value, our consult, our value consulting team, like they know that stuff. They're really, really smart. They, it's a really smart group of folks who work together and we map them in and they can speak the customer's language a lot sooner than the sales team. But what they do is they kind of raise the level of the sales team as well, because they come in and they say, hey, this is how we're going to do this inside of XYZ Pharma and these are the things that they're going to be interested in. It's just it, when you start speaking the customer's language, that I think helps establish credibility. So we use them a lot. And then just that really what our technology fundamentally does, it, it helps drive intelligence into the sales process, right? whether it's through marketing or other departments. So it's definitely a cross-functional effort.
1: I really like that line. So I am very intrigued then. How do you internally drive intelligence into the sales process? And that's probably potentially a very big question, but could you perhaps give one example of what you found to be a very effective way to drive intelligence into the sales process?
0: It's really, honestly, I think it's identifying successful work efforts or sales efforts by individuals or teams and figuring out a way to replicate that. And that's one thing our technology focuses on surfacing, right? Fundamentally, that's a lot, a big part of what Seismic does and the value add that it provides. It helps you identify what's working and how to make that repeatable, right? Whether you're selling to a global account in the pharmaceutical space or you're selling to a bid market account in the consumer goods space, right? It's just, you want to be able to take successes and translate them across markets and industries and make them repeatable so that everybody benefits. Just a
1: quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. Absolutely. Uh, What would you say are perhaps some of the most common efforts that I appreciate that can be really subjective based on the region and the industry and so on. But in your experience, what would you say are perhaps the most common activities or efforts that leads to kind of more consistent improvements in performance?
0: A lot of times it starts with customer objectives. So we see a lot of the folks we talk to across the spectrum of clients we deal with, they have similar objectives, right? They just call them something different. And I think once we identify that and we're able to, if we've successfully addressed one, it's then mapping it back, stripping out the vernacular, replacing it, and just kind of taking the process down to its studs and then sort of rebuilding it, specific to that particular customer or industry or segment, we've had a lot of success doing that, which I know is kind of a general vague answer, but it's hard to get specific just because there's so many examples of the ways that we do that.
1: Got it. I want to ask you one final question then, Kevin. What is one book that you'd recommend to other revenue leaders
0: and why? Great question. And, you know, I am constantly trying to read. I was a history major, so I generally read history, but I like to read a lot of coaching and training books and leadership books. There's a book I read about four or five years ago by a guy by the name of Bob Rotella, and he got his start as a sports psychologist at UVA in the early 80s. I think he was one of the first sports psychologists out there that of renown, and he worked a lot with golfers. He wrote a book called How Champions Think. I want to say he published it in the last decade, maybe seven, eight years ago. It's a great read. And I picked it up and I read it. I found it. And he maps a lot of what he did turn in terms of coaching athletes and turning average athlete into the better than average or outstanding athlete. And he applies those lessons to business. And when I tell you, it was like reading like chapter after chapter, it was just like light bulbs going off left and right. Right. It just Different. Like every anecdote, every lesson resonates. And you just kind of it's a great book to go back to and look at it, you know, if you're stuck with something, because chances are he talks about it in some way, shape, or form. But it's yeah, How Champions Think by Bob Rotella. It's it's a fantastic book.
1: Nice. I'll put a link down to that in the show notes. And uh I also love how relevant it is to what you guys are doing at seismic in many ways as well, of taking the things that are working and then replicating them.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's just I think a lot of, regardless of the industry that you're in, I think if you're in a sales leadership role, it's a good read. It will definitely, even if you're not a sports fan, because it's not heavy on sports. I mean, it points back to a lot of sports references and such, but it's not a sports book. It's really a leadership and development and training book.
1: Perfect. Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and to uh, give me the opportunity to pick your brains for 30 minutes. For everyone listening at home, if they have any questions or want to reach out, where can they find you?
0: You can find me. Probably easiest way is email, at seismic.com. I'm on Twitter, but it's not that fun.
1: <laughs> uh, no, not in recent moments in particular.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, not even Twitter anymore, right? It's X.
1: <laughs> I'll make sure we put links to those down below. Well, Kevin, thank you again so much for your time and for everyone that's listened to the episode this week. We'll catch you next week. Appreciate it, Lee. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.